welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of the How the Mighty Fall by the mighty Jim Collins and why so companies never give in. Jim Collins obviously wrote the wildly successful business books, Built to Last and Good to Great, both of which we've done on the podcast in years gone by. And each of those featured these six-year-long studies into the biggest and best companies in the world. Built to Last, it was all about building long-term companies with a vision that had lasted for decades or centuries. And then Good to Great was about companies that were just, you know, they were good, but then they made the leap to being great and how they were different to other companies who got stuck in that good phase. Obviously, phenomenal books, sold millions of copies, all the biggest executives around the world have been spruiking them for the, the for a long time and there's great advice in the books, but there was only one problem. Although they were good to great and they were built to last, they were also crashed. <laughs> yeah, Probably right. pretty much a good majority of them crashed and failed in the end. Some of the built to last didn't last and some of the good to great went back to good and then went to zero as well. So <laughs> clearly, so Jimbo was saying, you know, what's a go here? You know, he thought, okay, look. There's a few ways you go about it. <laughs> you capitulate and, and uh, go to the Bahamas and just uh, just hide and take your money and, and give up. That's right. But Jimbo thought, you know what? Let's have a look into maybe why did these ones crash in the first place? He said that they it didn't invalidate his initial research because the things that made them great and made them last were true, but they just stopped doing them and they crashed as a result. Uh, but also, at the same time, when you've written two of the biggest and best business books of all time and then all of a sudden, these companies are gone, you thought, okay, well, we better do something about this and I better have another look. Well, he did a mighty reframe, didn't he? He said, <laughs> uh, how did they fall? And because I, I, I buy into it here. I do believe him. It doesn't invalidate his books at all. They just did a certain a few things that led them up to uh, failure. So, that's the question. How did they go from great mm. and how did they end up falling and going to zero? That's right. And I guess as a as a bit of a story, him and his wife, Joanne, they were on a, a run in 2002. They were doing uh, an intense run known as the Electric Pass outside Aspen, Colorado. It starts at an altitude of 9,800 feet, finishes at 13,000 feet. So it's a, it's a wild run and a wild climb. And about halfway, Jim was struggling. He, was, he, was, uh, he slowed down to a walk. He'd finished his jog. He couldn't handle it much more. But his wife, Joanne, she was just powering ahead. She was still going strong and just and basically disappeared up the hill in front of him. But then when he got to a clearing, he could see that she was kind of bent over. She was uh, really, she'd got pretty sweaty. She was pretty hot, which you'd kind of expect um, from somebody who was running. But she was, she'd still really dominated him in that run. And he thought, man, this is a powerful, powerful woman. She's got me covered, that's for sure. She certainly did. And then, but only two months later, um, they received the shocking whopping diagnosis that led to a double uh, mastectomy. So she had breast cancer that day when she was powering her way up the hill. So, um, led to a bit of a paradox here because the image of looking healthy and being able to run right up the, the mountain and being sick at the same time, mm. that's really the metaphor he's using for the collapsed companies. That's right. He says that uh, the metaphor of this institutional decline is much like a disease. It's pretty hard to detect early on. If you do detect it, it's easy to cure in the early phases. But then later on, it becomes more and more obvious that there's some underlying disease or sickness there. But by that point, it's going to be pretty hard to cure. So it's kind of like a bit of a unfortunate that it's hard to detect early. But by the time you do detect it, it might be too late. Every institution is vulnerable to collapse. It doesn't matter how great you are. No matter how much you've achieved, how much you've killed it in the past, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how much power you've, you've garnered, how much money you've got, you're always going to be vulnerable to decline. And there's no law of nature that the most powerful people who are in the top can't be whacked down to the bottom because anyone can fall and most eventually do. 
Back in uh, 1989, when uh, Jim Collins and his colleague Jerry Porras started their Built to Last book, their six-year study, they selected Motorola as one of the most visionary companies in the world. They'd lasted for decades, gone through a couple of family generations, and they built up this massive uh, success, hell of a lot of money, and they'd built all the way up from $5 billion in annual revenue to $27 billion in annual revenue in just a decade. And so Jim and Jerry thought, this is a fantastic company. They've lasted forever. They're killing it. Let's put them in our book. But, and a pretty big but, <laughs> by the mid-90s, their magnificent run of success where they'd gone from $5 billion annual revenues to $27 billion per annum in just a decade. So there's a lot of cash coming through. They actually contributed to a cultural shift from that humility from their early days, and it, which actually turned into arrogance in the mid-1990s. So that's really what killed them was that shift from humility to arrogance. In 1995, they were gearing up to launch the StarTac cell phone, which at the time they were claiming was the, the smartest cell phone in the world, obviously before actual smartphones. This was smartest uh, in a relative sense. It had this sleek clamshell design. It was the first of its kind. There was just one problem was that this StarTac, it was built on analog technology, which was great. It was working well at the time. But really, every wireless mobile carrier in the world was starting the shift from analog to digital. So how did Motorola respond? There was like this shift emerging. Um, the grassroots companies were sort of uh, recognizing it. But Motorola's response was they had a senior leader and they said, look, that digital threat is coming. They're wrong. Our 43 analog customers who love For, our- 43 million. Yeah, well, that's a big difference. There, <laughs> yeah. Our 43 million analog customers who are buying our products every year, they can't be wrong. No, everyone else, you're wrong. We're right. <laughs> that's right. I said, no, let's not look to the future. Let's stay in the past because uh, analog seems to be where it's at. And uh, Motorola then tried to strong arm like some of their partners. So Bell Atlantic, they sell the phones and Motorola said, you know what? If you want to sell this, this is going to be the biggest and best phone the whole world has ever seen. Everybody's going to want them. If you want to sell it, then you've got to play by our rules. They said that in your stores, 75% of the phones that you sell have to be Motorola phones, which, which is, man, this is ridiculous, ridiculous <laughs> if you think about it. And you also have to say, you have to, you have to really promote this Motorola StarTac pretty hard, put it at the front of the store, put it on all the end caps, put it in all the best spots and really pump it up because this is going to be massive. Well, the executives at Bell, they must have heard this Motorola executive and thought this, this person's a bit of a bloody wanker. Mm. Um, telling us to do these things. So you're going to say that if we don't agree to your rules, um, you're not going to sell Motorola in Manhattan at all? Like perplex, right? Because so they, they basically owned them all, yeah. They own the stores in New York <laughs> City. And Motorola, they still tried to remain tough in this negotiation, but they ultimately con conceded. That's right. They they kind of had to play by the, the real rules, not by their own rules. Uh, and really, this launch that they thought was going to be massive, also was cool. Digital obviously took over in the end, and Motorola pretty quickly fell from being the number one mobile phone maker in the world at one point, and they had 50% of the market share, to then only a few short years later in 1999, they were down to 17% market share. And I guess fast forward two decades on, I don't know anyone who's got a Motorola phone anymore. They're done and dusted, mate. And this is because their fall from greatness began at stage one, hubris born of success. Start with a bit of humility 
end up a whole bunch of wankers because they're being successful. <laughs> That's right. Dating all the way back to ancient Greece, this concept of hubris, it was defined by excessive pride that brings down the hero. Everyone knows about uh, Icarus who had his wax wings, but with a bit of hubris, flew a bit too close to the sun and the, those wings melted off and he came crashing back down to earth. That's pretty much what happened to Motorola. They came crashing and crashing hard. In 2001, they still had 147,000 employees, but by 2003, just a, a year and a half later, Almost 60,000 jobs were gone in those couple of years. So that's, we're talking, what's that percentage was? Like a third of their, more than a third, like 40% of their workforce getting wiped out within just a few short years thanks to their hubris. Their bloody hubris. Uh, Collins, through all his research, he noticed that the best leaders he studied were the ones that never presumed they've reached the ultimate stand, understanding of the factors that brought them success. Motorola, they were the opposite. They thought they knew exactly what was going on in their business and they had it all figured out. Because for one thing, the ones who were building and into a great company, they retain this sort of irrational fear that this idea that perhaps their success stems from a lot of about its luck and fortune mm. and these um, lucky circumstances that have fell in place for them to be successful. It's interesting. Well, if you think about it, there's two approaches. You, you get really, really successful. There's two ways you can look at it. One way is to kind of discount your own success and just say, you know, we might have been lucky. We we're in the right place at the right time. We we're kind of living off the momentum that had been built up. And then maybe there wasn't a whole lot of competition. And if you're thinking about that, um, you're going to constantly and it's it, like obsessively think about how can you improve? How can you be stronger? How can you get better? Uh, and how can you just keep going until that good luck runs out? Because I guess the downside of that approach is that if you're wrong and you actually got successful because you were good, then that's a good thing because you're going to be trying to get better constantly. Uh, you're going to be trying to build up, build up, be more disciplined and eventually get better. Imagine, compare that with the second approach. Let's say you suppose your success is because you were so smart and your superior qualities and you're telling yourselves, <laughs> hey, we deserve our six pickets. We're so good. We're so smart. We're so innovative. We're so amazing. You're patting yourself on the back the whole time here. Downside here, if you're wrong, is quite different because- mm. Let's say if you were lucky at the very start, um, you're not going to be finding all the new ways to innovate and be very prepared for when things go bad because one day you might wake up to, to discover some sort of vulnerabilities before it's too late. Yeah, that's right. If you've got that hubris that you just think you're amazing, uh, then when things turn, you're going to realize, actually, shit, we're not that amazing after all. So like inquisitive scientists, the best corporate leaders remain students of their work. They're relentlessly asking questions um, and they've got what he calls an incurable compulsion uh, into their brains of just thinking, you know, why did we get like this? What have we done that's caused this? How can we get better? And if you're constantly digging to find the reasons for your success and constantly trying to innovate and find new ways that you can be successful in the future, then you're going to be in a much better place than just thinking, I'm amazing, I've done so well, this is just going to continue on forever. Here we're going to sit on the doctor's chair and pull out the markers for your diagnosis if they're a company in stage one. It's going to relate to a few of Colo's earlier books. You're going to feel like your success is entitled with a bit of arrogance and this is where you think your success is deserves rather than fortuitous as we were saying. You're going to neglect the primary flywheel. Remembering good to great, uh, a lot of the great companies have this flywheel where it's just a constant pulling and constant going at it and all of a sudden you've got a huge flywheel getting momentum. If you stop spinning that thing, one day it's going to slow down. It might fall off the hinges and, and walk <laughs> and go next door and hit, and hit some pedestrian walking the dog. <laughs> You decline in your learning orientation, so uh, perhaps the growth mindset, you lose that and you move into the fixed mindset, which is pretty similar to the other element, is where you're discounting the role of luck, uh, as we were saying before. 
When Collins was studying why so many of the built-to-last and good-to-great companies just flopped, he assumed it was because they were complacent. They were just, mm. um, they had their success and they were just sitting on the chair, not doing anything and failed to innovate or they didn't have any bold action and courage and they failed to ignite the change. Um, and they just sort of became lazy and just let the, let the world sort of pass them by. That theory makes sense. You'd think that if a company flopped, it's because they stopped trying to do cool new shit. But <laughs> their data found... Um, that that wasn't the story at all. Um, of course, if a company did do that, they did become complacent and didn't, um, and they refused to change or innovate. They probably would fall. But all these big, you know, the ones that were built to last and the ones that were good to great, that actually wasn't what happened. Um, in fact, that they found that uh, it wasn't complacency at all, but it was actually overreaching. There was a better explanation of this self-destruction. Yeah, Motorola. They increased their number of patents. Um, from 613 in 1991 to 2016 in 1995. And they proudly announced that it were number three for their patent productivity. There's another one, Merck. They had 1,933 new chemical compounds, being a chemical company from 1996 to 2002, the time when they went to shit. And in 1999, HV launched its Invents campaign and nearly doubled its patent applications in two years but it just went through it and spiraled down to crap as well uh, through their stage four. So stage two of decline is the undisciplined pursuit of more. Yeah, so we ha- we've seen that it wasn't complacency, but it was this undisciplined pursuit of more that really sent these ones down the gurgler. And another, uh, probably a really good example is Rubbermaid. Um, there was a bit of a terrifying demise. In the early 1990s, two Rubbermaid executives, they visited the antique section of the British Museum and they were walking around and they found that, oh, these Egyptians, you know, from thousands of years ago, they actually had some pretty cool kitchen utensils. We could probably repurpose some of these and make our own brand new products that are similar to these. And they actually came away from this one day, one afternoon at the museum with 11 new product ideas. Now, 11 new product ideas from one afternoon sounds like a lot, but the the goal of Rubbermaid at the time, they said that their goal was to launch one brand new product every single day. Seven days a week, 365 days a year, they want to launch a new product, plus they want to expand to a new category every 12 to 18 months because they said that the, the CEO in 1994, he said, our vision is to grow. No, it makes intuitive sense, especially with a lot of books we've read. Adam Grant would approve of that one. Uh, Einstein, who was it, Shakespeare, all the big big dogs <laughs> of history, they uh, they went through thousands of things and there's only a few things that work out. So if you just go go throw a lot of stuff against the wall and see what sticks, probably going to work out. The problem was they started to choke on these 1,000 new product ideas they'd launched over the three-year period. Um, on one side, they were getting slammed with the new raw material costs, which doubled in an 18-month period. But on the other side, they were getting slammed with their ambitious growth targets. So they were sort of fraying at the edges. They were getting pulled in all directions. They were failing at the basic necessities of how to run a corporation, like just controlling your costs and filling your orders on time, negotiating with suppliers. But if you've got a thousand suppliers rather than six, how can you go out and negotiate? <laughs> That's right. They wanted to grow and they thought that growth would come from doing a whole bunch of new shit all at the same time, new markets, new acquisitions, new geographies, new technologies, new vo- new joint ventures, um, all these you know, all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new ideas. But then it all came crashing down and they actually reported their first loss. In the fourth quarter of 1995, their first loss in decades. And uh, they thought, okay, well, shit, we probably 
overdone it a little bit here and they thought, let's try and wind this back a bit. We'll try and dig ourselves out of this hole. They actually eliminated 6,000 product variations. They closed nine plants. They wiped out 1,100 jobs um, but and they also made their, they thought, okay, well, with all these savings, let's try and do something that can help us grow. They made their biggest acquisition in history. They tried to make uh, this, this big... Uh, this big acquisition to try and buy some new revenue to help them keep growing and keep growing and keep growing. It really just wasn't working though. No, more on the Hail Mary effect later. But in the end, Rubbermaid, they realized way too late. Yes, innovation can fuel growth. You can make a strong case for going out there and innovate. But there's a big but here, like uh, pretty much every one of uh, the stages of failure. Um, Frenetic innovation, this is where you got growth that erodes consistent and your tactical sort of excellence and decisions can just as easily send a company cascading through the crap and through the stages of decline. So some of those legendary companies that were in built to last that suddenly accidentally found themselves in How the Mighty Fall, um, they started out with a very different pursuit. So they started out, their initial founders had these noble purposes far beyond just making money. So George Merck II, he passionately sought to preserve and improve human life. Paul Galvin of Motorola, he was obsessed with the idea of continuous renewal through unleashing human creativity. Uh, Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard from HP, they believed that it was their existence was to make technical contributions and then profit was kind of only just the means to keep them achieving that goal of technical contributions. The problem was once those founders uh, you know, moved on or passed away and handed it over to the next generation or the new leaders, they found that those noble pursuits were left behind and it started becoming growth for growth's sake. Yeah, it started time to cash in, isn't it, when you're there and uh, where the money was sort of a side effect of them pursuing some sort of why and vision that they had at the start, it turned into money being the actual core reason of your existence and all your decisions went towards that and then every decision is uh, probably like quarterly earnings per share mm-hmm. and just the growth, consistent growth. But when you're doing that, it, it makes you start doing some dumb decisions. So the problems of stage two not stem from growth but from the undisciplined pursuit of more. Yeah, that's right. Growth is not it's – it's a really fine line. Like growth is obviously important. Um, if you're a big company, you want to grow. But you can't grow too much in an undisciplined way. And uh, you know, undisciplined comes from a whole bunch of things. Um, discontinuous leaps into areas for which you've got really no interest in being a part of, that's undisciplined. Taking action inconsistent with your core values, that's undisciplined. Addiction to scale, that's undisciplined. Neglecting your core business while you leap after the, the new shiny object, that's undisciplined. So growth is not necessarily bad, but undisciplined growth or the undisciplined pursuit of more, that's bad. In 1985, a Motorola engineer vacationed in the Bahamas and whilst he was on holiday, his wife thought, you know what, I'm going to keep working. I'm going to work from the beach uh, but I'm still going to make my phone calls. She was going to call her clients and she was going to keep doing her work back in New York City. She was probably a bit ahead of her time. I reckon in 2022, you could get away with that. In 1985, she quickly realized that whilst cell phone coverage was fantastic in the US, when she found herself on this remote island, she wasn't getting any calls going through and uh, that work wasn't getting done. It wasn't getting done. It sparked an idea though. What if Motorola could create a whole bunch of different satellites that could ensure a very crisp phone connection at any point on Earth? It sounds incredible. Great idea. <laughs> Great idea. So they thought this is all right. This is our next big target. It's our next big bet. We want to make this anywhere on Earth connection available to people um, with this bold new venture we're going to put together called Iridium. 
And because it was such an awesome idea and they thought, well, we can be the first ones to do this, they kind of went all in. They pumped in $537 million worth of cash into this new venture. They also guaranteed a $750 million loan into Iridium. They guaranteed that against the Motorola company themselves. Uh, and so after a little bit of uh, you know this initially, it wasn't really a, a small test. It wasn't really a small bet. It wasn't really a, a lean startup, you might say. It was very much a big, big bet. They thought this is the thing and this is where we're headed. It's a lot of cash. There's a lot of cash put into it here, but it's, it's not even a huge issue there because that came a bit later down the track after they made their bet and their decisions down the track. Because in 1996, there was a decision point. Um, things weren't doing very well at this stage and they had to make the call, do we double down or do we just cut our losses and not fall for the sunk costs effect? Yeah, in 1985, when they first had that idea and there wasn't really much good coverage, then it, it sounded like a great idea. But by 1996, coverage around the world was actually pretty decent. So kind of the, the use case had kind of eroded. And in 1996, the next step to really get this happening was to launch 66 satellites into space to get this this grid up and running. Now, that's not really a cheap experiment anymore. That's a pretty serious no, <laughs> pretty serious decision to launch 66 satellites into space. Yeah, you're throwing, throwing a bit of a Hail Mary in that sense. It wasn't just expensive for them as a company. It was pretty expensive as a bloody consumer because it cost you 3,000 US and this big bulky bloody headset to carry around. On top of that, it cost $3 to $7 a minute to make calls. So Motorola's revenues, they've gone up five times from $5 billion to $27 billion a year at this point, as we were saying uh, in the first stage of decline. So they thought that was so good. They probably had that bit of hubris, like I was saying. They were a bit blind to the facts, thinking that everything they touched turned to gold. Yeah, so they thought, you know what? We can get this thing off the ground, uh, you know, quite literally. They get those satellites up off the ground. But there was kind of this mounting evidence that it was going to be a big flop. But they were very blind to this. They said, you know what? Uh, the the upside is more than the risk. There's not really much risk. They were really blind to the risk. Um, they denied the risk. And of course, a year later in 1998, Iridium, they defaulted on a $1.5 billion loan. They filed for bankruptcy. And then in Motorola's 1999 annual report, there was just a small little line item down the bottom that just said, we've lost $2 billion in, in Iridium. Um, and that was Motorola down the gurgler as well. Oh, yes. Well, that Uber is born of success at the start. says, we're going we're gonna to kill it, anything we do. And undisciplined pursuit of more. We're going to make huge bets to make some big cash. And then number three, uh, you're going to deny the risk and peril in these huge bets and things aren't going to go well. But luckily, there are some companies who do it the right way. One of them is a company called Texas Instruments, who are a similar-sized company with a revolutionary idea, but it a whole, did it in a whole entirely different way. Yeah, in the 1970s, uh, an engineer had this idea for a product that could help kids learn to spell. They called it the speak and spell. So the toy would speak a word, so it would, you know, a digital recording of a word. And then the kid had to type on the keypad the letters to spell that word. So it's, you know, pretty basic. Uh, and the idea itself was pretty basic. But what the real core was, was this underlying technology, this DSP technology, which takes these chunks of data and crunches them into digital bits and bytes. So you take, you know, a recording of a voice and then turns that analog into a digital recording. So in the 1970s, this was pretty revolutionary. The toy itself was great, uh, and they kind of built off that idea. They made a little small bet of $150,000 to build this, not $537 million like, uh, like the other company did, like Motorola did, because this $150,000 small bet was less than one hundredth of 1% of their revenues at the time. It's hardly anything. A tiny little cheeky bet which went to a little bit of cheeky more revenue over the next seven years because in 1986, 
they're up to six mil in revenues. Not a huge killing for them. Um, but with that core sort of growth of this spin-out company, they spent out other things with the underlying technology for wider applications. So six million bucks, still a nice return, especially if you run that company. But it's hardly a bet the company Hail Mary from the back end of the field sort of moment um, like Motorola. Yeah, so they, they thought, you know, this is going well, but we're not going to go all in on this. But they kept chipping away. Um, they kept building up. They kept, I guess, turning the flywheel. They kept developing this DSP technology in an iterative way. And it wasn't until 1997, so almost two decades after they'd first started this off, that Nokia said, you know what, this DSP thing that you guys have done, this is pretty awesome. Can you guys put a, a DSP chip into 20 million of our mobile phones? And then that was, okay, then like, okay, here we go. This is the actual moment. And it turns out that over the next couple of years, they'd actually claimed half. So they had 50% market share of the DSP chip market, which added up to $4 billion for their company. Yeah, so it started out very small things. So the good companies who do it right, the great companies, um, that what they do is they experiment with a lot of little things. A lot of the things don't really pan out in the end, um, but some of them, like it did for uh, Texas Instruments, it can turn into something big and it can actually end up being one of the core parts of your business. Like a mini little flywheel, you got your big flywheel, you got these little mini flywheels spinning all around the company. This can become bigger and bigger and get more momentum for you. And the, so the problem isn't that you know Motorola just picked the wrong thing to develop because obviously if you knew ahead of time which ideas would work and which ones wouldn't, it would be a pretty easy game, this whole game of business, but you don't. So the, the great companies, they're the ones who experiment with a lot of little things and build up and they actually acknowledge the risks along the way. Motorola, they were denying the risks. Everybody was saying, guys, this thing is not working, it's not working, it's not working, there's risks everywhere, it's not going to work. But they said, you know what, we're Motorola, we're the kings, we can do whatever and just went for it anyway. Whereas TI, the whole way along, they knew that there were risks so they built it up slowly. Yeah, quite recently I was watching a General Motors CEO talk about their uh, someone asked them about the AI technology and um, she answered, look, we've got the best AI technology out there of all the other car markets and we've got the best electric car and everything like that. And uh, everyone watching was just like, no, you don't. Like, what, what are you on about? And <laughs> uh, for her, obviously, they got their core business of being um, internal combustion engines and a little bit blind to the risks and, and the, the perils. So I guess time's going to tell what happens in that sense. But it's probably common to all companies where they're just denying the risks because they've been so successful in the past. So far, we've descended down the mountain through three stages of decline. Stage one was Uber is born a success. Two was undisciplined pursuit of more. Stage three, at this point, denial of risk and peril. Now, stage four begins when an organization begins to sort of react to this downturn. They think, shit, things are starting to go pretty bad. What's going on here? <laughs> you sort of lurch for a silver bullet. That's right. Stage four is grasping for salvation. And that can take a whole range of possible forms. It might be... Uh, Betting big on some unproven technology, you might be pinning your hopes on an untested strategy, you might be relying on the success of some splashy, fancy new product, you might be seeking some game-changing acquisition, game-changing probably would come up uh, in all those company reports saying how good they're going to be right now, it might be gambling on some kind of image makeover, it might be hiring consultants, it might be uh, bringing some savior CEO, it might be uh, everyone talking about a revolution that's coming just around the corner. There's all these silver bullets, all these, this grasping for salvation um, it, of thinking, okay, this is we're in trouble but we're going to turn it around and we're just going to keep grasping and keep hoping. Yeah, all the companies that went um, went very poorly. There's a few examples here. Circuit City, for example, they had their homegrown CEO. 
They got rid of him, this guy, and they got a, a hot shot one from Best Buy who had been there just for 18 months. And as soon as he came in, he fired 3,000 of most of the most experienced staff because they were too highly paid, he thought. And within two years, they hired Goldman Sachs, pinning their hopes on a bit of a buyout at this stage. But that all didn't go very well. But two years later, after these big bets, Circus City went for bankruptcy. Yeah, they ticked off a few on that list there, a few grasping. They brought in a new hotshot CEO. They tried to cost cut by firing a whole bunch of staff and then brought in consultants and they tried to sell and then uh, all these little silver bullets didn't pay off and they ended up carking it. Scott Paper was another one. Um, not Scott Pape, the barefoot investor, but Scott Paper, uh, a paper company. They brought in some uh, expensive strategy consultants and they wanted to have this revolutionary uh, company culture transformation. And they effectively told all the stuff, here's the, here's the culture, um, here's basically our Scott Paper Bible. You've got to follow this, the, our company Bible. You've got to basically get religious about the Bible or you're going to get shown the door. A lot of people got shown the door. <laughs> they thought this, this revolutionary culture change was going to save them, but it didn't. Ames, like a lot of companies, just churned through CEOs and CEOs, hiring and firing, getting through three different ones in two and a half years. That's a lot to go through. Yeah. Each new CEO they brought in, of course, came and said, all right, I've got the answer, everyone. <laughs> everyone just hang around here and they just pitched their big idea to the board, um, the new program and the new fundamental transformation. But each really had a tiny little crack at it and you got shown the ass before, <laughs> before they could put into fruition because it's probably going to be crap anyway. That's right. So the kicker is that uh, you might think that grasping for salvation is the only rational thing to do. You've gone through the first three stages of decline. You're in trouble. You can sense that things aren't going so well. So you're grasping for salvation. You're looking for the savior. You're looking for the silver bullet. You don't want to die a slow and painful death. Uh, you're confronting the inevitable reality and you're trying to do something radical to change your destiny. But the problem is that it's kind of that grasping, that desperation. Uh, when you're on the verge of death, it actually accelerates your death. Jim learned this when he was pretty young because when he was 14 years old, he started learning to rock climb. He remembers one day he was very terrified because he was 100 feet up in the air overhanging a rock face and um, he was trying to figure out how to grapple through it. But unexpectedly, the anchor gear sort of shifted a little bit and uh, he's thinking, shit, like, he's not that experienced here. And instinctively, he lurched to grab the rock in front of him, but in doing so, uh, he let go of his handbrake the hand you meant to have with your control for your downward descent. And this quick reaction in fear when he was trying to save himself actually increased his danger and caused a lot of the issues because he could have free-fallen straight to the bottom and died um, <laughs> if he hadn't catched the lip of the rock wall, he <laughs> thought. Right. Luckily, he had his uh, instructor sort of like with a little little guide safety rope sort of thing <laughs> to cover him. But if he wasn't there, um, yeah. we wouldn't be reading Jim's book today. <laughs> that's right. It's a, that's a, it's a good metaphor, isn't it? That... Something bad happens, you panic, you reach out and grab, but really you're letting go of safety and just trying to cling to hope. But that's actually what's making the, that's increasing the risk and increasing the danger. So often when we find ourselves in trouble, when we find ourselves on the cusp of falling out, survival instinct and our fear, it leads us to lurch and grasp and grab for the silver bullets. Uh, and we're thinking that this reactive behavior is going to save us, but it actually kind of uh, is contrary to survival. It actually makes us much worse off. It's very hard to do and I think one of the biggest things is like think of the CEO's role when they come into this company or if they're there already. Um, if they know things are going to go bad, there's two ways you can go about it. You can kind of sit there and not do a Hail Mary <laughs> silver bullet thing but if you do the silver bullet and things go to turn to shit, at least you can say to the board and hang on to a bit of a reputation and say, look everyone, I went for it. I gave the biggest shot. I had a crack at something mm. new. There was transformation that was going to save us. Didn't work out. 
please forgive me. Mm. But that actual thing was much worse than, uh, what is it, the action bias? What's the intervention bias? I think mm. comes up in a few books where the actual intervention does make things worse. Yeah, the, the thing that you want to do in those moments where you realize that you're kind of slipping or you're falling is you need to slow down. You need to take calm, deliberate action. You've got to look back to your flywheel. You've got to look back to your core values and like, like quite carefully and consciously decide what you do next rather than just reactively grabbing and grasping. But of course, uh, if you're sitting back on your hands and analyzing your core values and looking to the flywheel and you don't really do anything and then the, the ship hits the iceberg, if you're the CEO, you're in a bit of strife. It's much better to be the captain who's doing everything they can to try to turn the ship around and say, guys, I tried, it didn't work, um, but you can't blame me. I did everything I could. <laughs> so stage four is where they grasp for salvation and in doing so, they're making things a lot worse and they're accelerating their decline. Having grasped for salvation in stage four, we find ourselves obviously after stage four comes stage five. It's pretty ominous. It's either capitulation to irrelevance Oof. or death. Yeah, both of them aren't ideal. <laughs> no. Jim thinks back to his mentor, Bill Lazier, who taught a course on business management at Stanford Graduate uh, School of Business. So all the big dog um, MBA students go in there and he'd sort of walk around the classroom a bit like Tony Robbins and he'd randomly call on the student and say, hey, what's the central issue of this business case? Why do they fail? And the students who work at the big consultant firms and investment banks give sort of fluffy answers that sound pretty smart, like strategic choices, identifying their value chain, developing a brand, some other sort of smart, smart sounding thing from a you know MBA wanker. The big bad Bill, he'd pace around and say, "No, think," and then eventually someone says, "Oh, look, I don't know if this is really the right answer. It seems a bit too simple. You're probably thinking for something a bit more advanced." But I just realised that they're not going to make payroll next week they've run out of cash and they're going to go bankrupt and bill says yeah well that's it they're, they're out of cash that's the the number one thing you need is cash you can't forget that you've got to pay your bills with cash and it's actually possible to be profitable but also bankrupt it's a weird thing he had big letters on the board c-a-s-h just to rub it in their face and that idea profitable and bankrupt mm. sounds like a bit of an oxymoron doesn't it it mm. doesn't really occur to a lot of people in big companies because in the entrepreneurial phase, your leaders struggle to become self-sustaining and profitable. It's a huge goal. And when you become big and successful, cash consciousness, it probably sort of atrophies. Hmm. That um, consciousness on it where you had at the start, it sort of loses. And you just look at your profits only and not your yeah. cash. You, you see, you've signed the big multi-billion dollar decade-long contract and you think, man, we're profitable, we're killing it, we've got all this money coming in. But then you realize that actually we've got all these bills piling up, we've got to pay our staff and we don't have any money to pay it. All our money's coming in the future and that's when you're in real trouble. When that cash flow comes, you've you've probably uh, been spiraling out of control, you're grasping for those silver bullets, you're over-investing and you realize, oh shit, we've run out of money, we're dead. <laughs> so your cash tightens, your hope fades, your options narrow pretty dark and negative at this stage <laughs> it really is it really is we'll bring back scott paper uh because they were kind of they were going down the the four stages of growth they were killing it they were once dominant obviously they made it into jimbo's first books um but by the late 1980s they'd fallen well behind their competitors pg and and kimberly clark and they were in the number three spot a lot of things had gone wrong their debt to equity ratio had jumped to 175 percent uh their capital constraints had led to chronic restructuring and cost cutting they were trying to cut costs and actually the then the credit ratings of scott papers bonds they put them on 
just one rung above junk bonds. Mm, that's then. Then one day they're like, oh, "We got to change this stuff around the board." So someone suggested, "Hey, I've heard a bloke called Al Dunlap. He's a bit of a Rambo. He goes <laughs> in there with his big gun and he shoots around and a whole bunch of stuff and things happen. <laughs> Let's bring him in." Um, and he was famous in his. He was actually famous with his actual nickname. They called him Rambo in Pinstripes. Uh, because he did a photo shoot with war paint under his eyes and fake machine guns and everything like that. And uh, Rambo Allen, he came in and he started to do his stuff like his reputation said he would. Yeah, he slashed 11,000 jobs, um, including 71% of upper management. Uh, and the profits kind of rebounded because all this cost-cutting flowed directly to the bottom line. And people thought, okay, well, maybe Scott Paper with Rambo Allen, maybe they're turning it around to, you know, maybe we can grow again, maybe we can become a dominant company. But really, Al had a different idea. He thought, you know what, we're just going to get ourselves in as good a possible uh position as we can and sell out and just take a nice little collection because big Rambo L, he called himself one of the superstars in his field. He was he said he was like the Michael Jordan or like the Bruce Springsteen and he was able to, you know, make this massive turnaround, dig him out of a little bit of a hole. He earned himself an eight fig eight figure salary. Uh and Is that just 10 said, mil? Yeah, that's right. At least, at least. And he just says, you know what, we're selling out. Yeah. Well it's not necessarily big Big Rambo's fault necessarily. He came pretty late in the stage of decline. If you're yeah. coming toward the end, there's not much you could do. Having said that, not all companies that hit stage five are destined to die. Some companies actually find a way to pull themselves out of this uh, death spiral. It's just that having moved through all the stages, those in power can become exhausted and dispirited at this stage. And eventually, you sort of abandon hope. And that's a big thing. When you abandon hope, that's when you should be preparing for the end and uh, packing up those cardboard boxes. So as you said way back at the start, if you can detect decline uh, before it's too late, if you if you can pick up your stages of decline in stage one, it's going to be easy to turn it around. If you go all the way down to stage five, it's going to become very obvious that you've got some kind of institutional disease. But by that stage, it's going to be very hard to dig yourself out. That's when you start bringing in Rambo L to say, mate, just salvage whatever you can. Um, you know, burn the village in order to save it. Let's just try and cash out what we can. Um, but thankfully, there actually is a bit of an upside. It sounds all doom and gloom, but when you get to stage five, there is still some hope if you keep hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a way you can do it. And there's some stories of people who've done it. One is Anne Mulcahy. She stepped into the Xerox offices in 2001, um, becoming the CEO. Things were pretty shitty at this stage. Uh, it was deep in stage four. Uh, she took over from a different CEO, uh, Richard Torman, and he was supposed to be the change agent. He was only been there for 13 months and nothing really changed. Um, they come off the back of $273 million loss. Uh, their debt to equity ratio cracked 900%. I think that's insane, man. Yeah, ridiculous. Moody's was saying it's uh, their, their bonds are junk and their share price had dropped 92% in only two years, wiping out $38 billion of value. And to cap it all off, the SEC had just launched an investigation to their books too. Mate, if I'm <laughs> Anne, I'm not jumping in that company. No, I'd be looking At for a new point, job. At that point, you'd be saying, all right, this ship... The Titanic, it's ninety percent down, or yeah. to be exact, what ninety two percent down? <laughs> That's right. Um, and it's not, it's not going to be. You'd think you'd jump off onto a lifeboat rather than going down with the ship. And uh, but she thought, you know what? I reckon I can do this. She stepped in. Uh, she described this situation as terrifying because they had nineteen billion in debt and only a hundred million in cash. But she had this. Uh, she had an idol that she'd always grown up admiring, Ernest Shackleton, who against all odds, he'd rescued his men. Their ship had splintered into a thousand pieces in Antarctic ice and it 
was crushing in all around them. This is in 1916 as well. Uh, but he, he was accompanied by his five crew members and he said, let's go back and get the others. And she thought, okay, I'm going to be the Shackleton of Xeroxia. She thought, I'm going to step in. And she said she, she didn't take a weekend off for two years. She shut down a number of uh, different businesses and different divisions. She cut $2.5 billion out of the Xerox cost structure. And of course, none of these decisions were easy. In fact, it was very, very difficult to make all these tough decisions, but they were kind of necessary. She was trying to do all the things she could uh, in, a, in a calm and disciplined way in order to stave off catastrophe. Almost every week, one of someone around the table was going, look, come on, things are going, let's go to chapter 11, let's go for bankruptcy. It's, it's done. But she held firm and resisted the calls the whole time. Everyone was saying, slash your R&D budgets, you don't know what you're doing. But she, at this stage, wasn't looking for the quick Band-Aid fix or the Hail Marys or the silver bullets like everyone was expecting her to do and all the other companies do. She knew that if they had any long-term hope for the future, she needed to be very tough on her her cost-cutting, but also build longer-term investments and start spinning some new flywheels uh, Mm. around, which is going to actually turn, which bring about new business and new new profits. So while she'd cut $2.5 billion of costs, she actually increased the R&D budgets. Everybody was saying, hey, here's an easy way to save money. Just stop doing R&D and we can save all this money. But she said, no, no, we're not just going for the silver bullet. We're going for the long-term rebuild here. So she increased R&D. Before she stepped in in 2001, the company's losses had totaled $367 million in just the last two years. But then just a couple of years into her reign in 2006, Xerox posted a profit of over a billion dollars in that year and a pretty nice and healthy, strong balance sheet compared to what she stepped into. In 2008, rightly so, she was named CEO of the year, having the guide literally very close to the Shackleton story, guiding the company through a seven-year rebuild and reclaimed its dominance and is obviously still a strong company today. So the good news is that if you have taken a fall, whether you're in stage one or whether you're in stage four or uh, dare say it's stage five. Stage five, you're done, mate. <laughs> no, stage five is still stage, a little bit of hope. stage four, I think. Okay, maybe stage four. If you find yourself in stage four, you're facing a genuine crisis. The sooner that you break the cycle of grasping for salvation, the better. So rather than you know, you're tumbling down that rock wall, instead of grabbing out for the rock in front of you and letting go of your rope, just keep a hand on your rope and keep calm and keep disciplined in your next actions. You can reverse course definitely in the first three stages. You might be able to reverse it at stage four but as long as you've got enough resources to get out of the cycle of grasping and have the discipline to rebuild you can do it one step at a time